I showed that. Nobody listening. Ain't nobody listening. Ain't nobody listening. I'll tell some. I'm genuinely hoping to to gain some wisdom from yourself. My impression is you you read and you think a lot. I don't know if this is a stretch to say, but. Uh, Uh, a modern philosopher in your own right? <laughs> well, I believe it's just to say yes. It's still, uh, wisdom is something that's been uh, fascinating humans for, for the longest of times. And one of the wisest people of all time, Socrates, once said that the beginning of wisdom is to realize that you know nothing. Yeah. This is the first type of wisdom. So, so calling myself wise is uh, far stretched, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love wisdom. That's yeah. the real meaning of uh, philosophy, basically. Uh, I'll, I'll read a quote that, uh, that you posted on your Instagram page. It says, the whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves, but wiser people so full of doubt by Bertrand Russell. Why did you post that? <laughs> well, that's uh, that explains perfectly the situation today in social media, basically. Mm. The majority of people, I mean, uh, uh, enjoy is just uh, the simple topics of life and uh, just to have a, j- a laugh or, or joke about things. And that's quite easy to, to attain, right? Mm. And it uh, doesn't require much effort. I mean, uh, being silly on social media is something that anyone can do. Even a kid of 10 years old can do that. And uh, it's effortless. And unfortunately, nowadays with social media as a platform, it gives you the illusion of uh, of success um, by obtaining uh, followers. followers and yeah. views and likes and so on. Um, and the, uh, the dopamine you get from just using the social media platforms and the likes and so on is equivalent to achieving something real in real life. This is just a trick that the brain uh, plays on you, you know? Some might say it's real. Some of them make money out of it, no? Yeah, but money is not everything. Yeah, that's true. I mean, true. to be honest, I mean, uh, we, have lots of, we have people who, who have lots of money and still the question of meaning is, uh, is knocking on the door every night before they sleep. The question of meaning is something that I feel I am constantly thinking about. Personally speaking, I always ask why. Why, 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 why? And honestly, sometimes it feels to a fault. Sometimes it feels like I could obtain more peace by not asking why. But I can't help it. I need to know why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Why am I going to work? What am I hoping for this to achieve? How is it supposed to impact people? Tell me a little bit about this uh, workshop that you conducted. You conducted two so far? Yeah, two so far, and there's one more coming up on uh, the 5th of February. Who is this workshop for? Um, it's mainly for anyone that is um, searching for meaning in their life. And now, I, I, don't, I don't claim that meaning is something that it needs to be something major, that uh, changing the world or so on, but finding meaning in the things that are inspiring for you on a day-to-day basis. And mm. It could be a simple, something as simple as Um, your day job or taking care of your family or the sports that you play or whatever it is but to have clarity on that and to be satisfied within that this is really important to you mm. is uh, something we tap into in this workshop by by uh, it's a practical workshop it's not just theory where I speak for, for th- uh, four hours mm. um, a good chunk of the workshop is actually practical where people um, um, answer some some key questions that I ask to, to make sure that they reach something that is Uh, owned by them. Would you be willing to go through this workshop with me? 
Maybe yeah, sure, sure. I'll I mean, be, I'll be your subject. <laughs> sure, sure. My pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Let's do it. So, how would you generally start your workshop? Well, um, I begin with the the question of meaning and why that is really important for people in today's time. I mean, um, one of the things that Dr. Viktor Frankl has shared. Uh, which he was basically one of the uh, survivors of the Holocaust back mm-hmm. in World War II. And um, he's a psychologist who established uh, a new school of psychology. He called it logotherapy, where basically um, to, to treat psychological illnesses by finding meaning. Mm. Yeah, that's his basically his fundamental uh, school of thought. Isn't there a book, uh, A Man's Search for Meaning? Yes, that's a book where he yeah. he shares his experience uh, being oh. a Holocaust in the Holocaust and uh, his analysis of people's behaviors uh, as detainees in the in these Holocausts mm. and um, and yeah, he shared basically his fundamental idea that people who survived. Um, uh, were those who had meaning and something to look forward to after they leave the prison. And those who didn't, uh, basically uh, their health deteriorated because of their, uh, basically the loss of hope. They lost hope on on life and uh, that's the reason why they became ill and passed away basically. Physically ill. Physically ill because of the psychological state of not finding meaning in life in general and what's happening to them. Wow. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out the mechanism of how that would work. Like how how does meaning affect one's health? For example, one of the things that he shared, he shared lots of stories in his book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, one of them was, uh, for example, a person who who said that he was very hopeful and optimistic that the war would finish by Christmas. It was, mm-hmm. I think, during summer at that time. And he, he thought that, or he believed that the war would finish in Christmas. Mm-hmm. And when Christmas came and uh, the cold season was over, there was no any sign that the war would end anytime soon. So just by that realization, the person fell ill, and within one week he passed away. Oof. And now Viktor Frankl, uh, in his ob- in his observation, he realized that the conditions are all the same for everyone, mm-hmm. in terms of the food they have, uh, times of s- timing of sleep and wake uh, waking hours, uh, their work, uh, how how tough is their work, and so on. All those conditions were quite controlled, and everyone experienced the same thing. But the experience was different from one person to another. Now, to him personally, um, he had two main drivers to to survive uh, that situation. One of them was uh, um, meeting his family after leaving the prison, Hmm. which was uh, both his parents and his wife. And uh, unfortunately, they, uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen because they all passed away in their uh, in the camps. Oh wow! Um, but the second uh, driver for him was he envisioned himself delivering uh, lectures, sharing his theories on logotherapy, and uh, and that happened basically. When if you search Viktor Frankl today on YouTube, you can see you can see his videos uh, at the age of 17, 80 years old, mm. delivering lectures uh, to hundreds of students in in, uh, in auditoriums. Well, can you tell me a little bit about this theory? A little bit more. Basically, uh, fundamentally, that uh, there is meaning in life, mm. and as a person is as a person, it's your duty and your responsibility to find meaning in your life. Uh, now, you could have. 
you could satisfy yourself with uh, the meaning that other people would give you. And generally, that's how uh, everyone begins with life. Uh, I mean, your parents, your schools, your society will tell you what's important to you. But you really need to take, to take time for yourself to realize what's really meaningful to you hmm. and uh, identify that and live by that, basically. Uh, I'd like to read another quote from your Instagram, which I feel connects to this idea. Um, the world will ask you who you are. And if you don't know, the world will tell you. That's by Carl Jung. Yeah. That's a powerful one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, f- I have seen it to be true in, in my own life. If you're not certain about what you want to do, how you want to be perceived, then the world will do it for you. And you can choose to either conform or to fight back uh, and really be your true self. Now, this idea of your true self is also a complicated idea that maybe we'll get into. But I guess my question is, do you need to know yourself in order to find meaning? Are those two connected? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I rarely say absolutely, but in this case, I would say it. Okay. Um, I mean, and just to to clarify on this concept of uh, knowing oneself, uh, I used to think that it's a a destination to arrive at Hmm. uh, early in my life. But I realized as I grow older and as I have different experiences, I realize how little I know about myself in certain areas. For example, marriage uh, uh, exposes some areas of your life that you are not aware uh, about. Mm-hmm. Uh, being a parent as well, the same thing. Uh, different situations in life, basically. So New I, situations. New situations, yeah. yeah. So basically, uh, the way I find, I would say, peace in this is to realize that it's a journey. And it's a continuous journey where you continuously discover parts of yourself and, uh, and live by them, basically. So in order for you to find meaning, you first must try to find who you are? Is there, is there, are there steps? Yeah, there are steps. According, according to, again, we'll go back to Viktor Frankl as, uh, as uh, a theory, because I think he, he, did, he, he detailed it quite, uh, quite well, basically. He mm. begins with the idea of to realize that you have the freedom to will. That's the fundamental first step. If a person doesn't believe that he has the freedom of will, mm. then that would be very difficult for him to uh, realize the meaning in life because he would immediately uh, subordinate to the meaning that the society or the world gives to him to them. One of the thing, things, I, one of the ideas I share in the workshop is basically whether uh, we are living in a world where you are basically. Uh, you have free will mm-hmm. in this world or you are forced to live according to what's happening to you. And uh, th- personal opinion is that you have the freedom to will even in situations where you're forced on certain circumstances that's beyond your control. Still you have the freedom to react to those situations according to what's best. Mm. And basically uh, coming to think about it then you would have the freedom to will almost all the time. Now, I know this. Uh, there is some argument today being raised, especially in uh, neurology and psychology, that uh, you are basically being driven by a s- subconscious mind. Or you're har- hardwired a certain way. Exactly, you're hard- hardwired in a certain way. Now, uh, 
that argument is valid to a certain extent, hmm. but again, it goes back to uh, your ability or your willingness to change certain behaviors and certain thoughts that you are uh, you have. And uh, basically, this goes back to this goes back to the responsibility of you as a human being. What do you consume mm-hmm. in terms of media, in terms of uh, information and knowledge out there, and what you consume basically would uh, direct your life. I mean, Carl Jung. Uh, it was him who said that. Who once said that we think. Uh, pa- paraphrase what he said. He said uh, we think that we own ideas, mm-hmm. but in reality, ideas own us. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have an idea that you believe in, that idea would... would It's a virus. It can be a virus. Exactly. It's yeah. directing you. Yeah. And uh, and uh, that's why you have to be very careful in terms of what ideas to adopt and the process of adopting these ideas. I mean, what critical thinking are we putting into place? I think, to, to me, that is the most important uh, part there. Because one, like we can't shield ourselves from ideas. Absolutely, yeah. But especially today. Especially today. There's no way. Yeah. Uh, and I, I've seen, I've witnessed people try to do that with their kids. Okay, you can do it to an extent, but how long before they get exposed to all the ideas? Exactly. Uh, the infections, if you will. So then w- what matters then? Then It's not the shielding of the ideas. It's not the exposure to the ideas. But how do you go about thinking about it, right? Yeah, yeah. So basically... Um, To know the, source, the sources of ideas and not only that, I mean, for example, I'll, I'll give, just give an example. Maybe it's off topic, but it's uh, it's worth mentioning. Um, John Stuart Mill, he is one of the, uh, I would say, f- founding fathers of the idea of liberty. Okay. Um, and basically, he, he has a book co- actually called On Liberty. Mm-hmm. And uh, lots of liberal views today are based on the fundamental ideas of John Stuart Mill. Okay. Um, reading the book, you re- you realize that uh, it's an awesome idea. It's uh, um, it's well presented and it's worth having and and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but reading the biography of John Stuart Mill, you would realize why liberty for him was such an important thing. Okay, his father basically um, he kind of raised him in a very strict manner. Uh, to the extent that by the time I think he was seven years old, he spoke uh, three languages. He spoke Greek, he spoke Latin, he spoke English. Wow. And uh, he read the books of uh, m- m- all the major philosophers by the time I think he was 14 years old. Mm. So he never had a childhood, basically. So as if that, I would call it trauma as a childhood of not having liberty, Uh, pushed him towards uh, thinking so much about the idea of liberty and how that is important for societies and uh, for po- as a political system as well. And was that a good thing or a bad thing? Because I'm not familiar with uh, John Stuart Mill. Well, his ideas, uh, some of them are are, va- are quite important and valid, hmm. uh, but I, I disagree with some of his views, and that's for the sole purpose that um, he he basically... Um, stands on the idea of utility as a, as a school of thought or school of ethics where where basically you define the ethics as good or bad or moral or immoral based on the utility you have on those ethics. And uh, this idea is useful in some 
areas, but it's quite flawed when it comes to thinking of moral values it, it, to live just, by. So if I, just so I get it right, is it the same idea as that the ends justify the means, kind of? Kind of, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So basically, basically uh, if lying would lead to a good result, yeah. then lying is justified. Ah. And uh, and that's the world today that uh, the world of politics, economics is being led by this uh, school of thought, basically. And uh, And, you know, as the different school of thought or the other school of thought is the school of uh, deontology, where um, basically the duty, the call of duty is uh, what defines uh, an act as moral or immoral. And that call of duty could be founded on religion or founded on uh, an ideology, an ideology or society, whatever it is. But there's a source of those uh, moral values. Um, well, well, on the other side that I mentioned of John Stuart Mill's yeah. school of thought is basically you decide what's right and what's wrong based on the yeah. uh, outcome of the action. So what's the, the moral of the story here? Uh, you, gave, you gave me an idea of his uh, history as a child. Yeah. And you gave me an idea of uh, his conclusions on it. Yeah, basically, uh, to realize the sources of ideas, hmm. uh, personally, I've been looking into the background of the authors of these ideas mm. i mean you can you can read a book of of uh, there's lots of uh, for example contemporary thinkers today for example uh, yuval harari who 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 authored the book uh, sapiens Mm-hmm. Sapiens and Homo Deus and so on. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty good book. It's a pretty good book, yeah. yeah. Uh, but realizing the background of the author is important to see where he's coming from. What did you discover? Um, well, I discovered basically uh, he's a hardcore atheist. Hmm. So definitely his worldview would be different than the worldview of someone who believes in in God and afterlife and so on. What does a hardcore atheist mean? Well, he doesn't believe... He, he is sure of... Uh, he has certainty. He has certainty that God doesn't exist. Huh. Yeah. And if you read the book again with that view, you'd be able to pick so many holes in his arguments. He, he wrote the book very beautifully, yeah. but without having that critical mindset... Hmm. Uh, and and halfway through the book, I realized that uh, okay, let me read a, a bit about the author as well. And when I read about him, I realized okay, now I can see where he's coming from and why he's sharing these ideas in this in these ways. You know, off the top of your head right now, do you have any examples of ideas that you think was affected by his beliefs uh, in the book? Um, the idea of uh, the idea of evolu- evolution, basically. Mm-hmm. The idea of evolution, basically, and uh, well, evolution as an idea, going back to Darwin, for example, who was the the uh, the person who initiated or popularized the idea of evolution. Uh, at the end of his life, he realized that whether evolution is proven scientifically, that is not enough to prove the existence of God or or the absence of God. Mm. So he was humble enough to realize that. Right. Um, I think that's the biggest misconception that people have yeah, about Darwin. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. At the end of his life, oh, definitely at the end of his life, he changed his views and he realized that you know what, the concept of God is much bigger than uh, evolution and earth. You know, this does not negate that. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, but when it comes to the book *Sapiens*, I realized that his his argument in terms of, um, for example, the use of the, the use of certain uh, body parts. Uh, he uh, he claims that humans are uh, 
based on evolution and based on the necessity of their environments and uh, achieving certain ob- objects objectives in life uh, they would use their organs how they wish to use them and he's arguing his way in that book for uh, for example the uh, for example homosexuality mm-hmm. I'm not sure if we can talk about this in this uh, in this show but uh, well I'll it, see if I'll get a phone call soon <laughs> or not <laughs> it's an intellectual discussion it so, is yeah. an intellectual discussion yeah so he argues for uh, that uh, lifestyle using using his uh, his background but again if you go back to his background you realize as well that he's almost a homosexual so so all of those things are playing part in terms of how he views the world and he will argue his, his way out to prove his points right yeah I feel like the last point um, is a, is a door for a whole different discussion that I don't think we we are capable of having on a live radio station sure um, for, we'll put that aside um, I want to I want to connect back to the idea of knowing oneself where does this leave us so we went out on a bit of a tangent here There is a, another quote that I really like from your... You're full of incredible quotes, by the way. They're in Arabic, so I have to go and find the original source uh, <laughs> in English. All you need in this life is ignorance and confidence. And then success is sure. By Mark Twain. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I feel like... I, I, I think I understand this, but I want to hear what you think this means. Um, well, basically, basically, looking at uh, the image of success out there today... Confidence is one of the the main skills or traits that people have who are successful. No matter how silly they are, no matter how uh, um, how much less, how much, I mean, uh, no matter how silly they are, no matter how uh, low value they provide to society, mm. but being confident is a sure key to success. And the... Uh, The conundrum here is that mm-hmm. is that uh, once you increase knowledge, your confidence goes down. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a funny thing because it is. <laughs> the, the the more you the more you you know, the more you realize you don't know. Basically, I totally agree. Yeah, and and that's that that quote basically is linked to the quote you mentioned earlier of Bertrand Russell, where uh, yeah. the ignorant are the ones who are uh, so confident on themselves. Yeah, uh, I I. I I remember very clearly being an 18-year-old teenager. And I feel like when I was 18, I knew way more than I know today. At least that was my perception. Mm. Don't come teach me anything. Yeah. I, I figured it out. You, you adults pretend like you know everything. Now I know everything. I'm as much of an adult as you. And then you go to college and college humbles you. Yeah. And you learn about the world, you learn about the ideas that you may agree with or disagree with, you learn a little, hopefully a little more about yourself. And exa- exactly as you said, like you get to a point, at least I got to a point where for a long time I became an extreme introvert. I felt like I don't trust the words that my, th- my ideas, what I say with my words, because in a couple of months they will change. I don't know what is true. Yeah. And that just took me down a rabbit hole of being super, super lost and very unconfident in myself. And it's, it wasn't a good thing. It, it didn't take me down a good path. It was an important realization. But I do also, like, confidence is needed, right? Sure. 
So then where do you find that sweet spot of having confidence, enough confidence? I think, um, I, I personally, I find that sweet spot, sweet spot in uh, admitting not knowing much. Hmm. So, uh, for example, one of the things I mentioned in my workshops when I begin the workshop is that um, I tell the audience that you would have to forgive me if someone asks me a question and I don't know the answer to that question, mm-hmm. I'll be honest enough to say, sorry, I don't know the answer to this question. And uh, that, uh, to admit that from the beginning gives me the freedom to, you know, to be confident in my, what I know and mm. to be confident in what I don't know as well. Yeah. I want to do something. If uh, the name of the show is Ain't Nobody Listening, but if you are listening uh, and you have a question that you want to ask or a contribution to this conversation, please feel free to leave a message on our Instagram page, a DM at omanafam.om. And hopefully, if I'm not too focused on Mu'atasam, I'll be able to read it throughout the, the next hour and a half. But for now, we'll go on a quick break. as I digest everything that I just heard and we'll be right back. And we're back to Ain't Nobody Listening with Mu'atasam Al-Sharji. I would say the closest I've had a conversation, uh, it's the closest to a philosopher that I've had a conversation with. Well, would you put yourself in that category? Well, um... Honestly, I would love to, but uh, the real meaning of philosopher, yes, definitely. I mean, the real meaning of philosopher in... A thinker, a person who contemplates life, no? Uh, the actual lit- literal meaning is philosophy. Hmm. So, philo in Greek means love, and sophie means wisdom. So, philosophy actually means uh, the, the lover of wisdom. The lover of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. But, but what if you're not just... I mean, what are the contingencies? What do you need to also be? Because I, I love wisdom, but let's say I don't read much. Then I, can you categorize a person as a philosopher? You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> reading reading might not be the only source of uh, attaining wisdom. Mm. I mean, contemplation definitely. I mean, reading without contemplation is is by itself is uh, is not enough. Mm. Yeah. Thinking and contemplation is really important. Understanding, yeah. analyzing, poking holes in the arguments. Of course. Um, I mean, Socrates, one of the greatest philosophers of all time, all he did was ask questions. Mm-hmm. He used to ask really critical questions and uh, people didn't like it. He was asking, for example, what does justice mean? Right. And just defining justice was very difficult for his, uh, his, his contemporaries back then. then he might have been a great uh, radio interviewer. <laughs> oh, what are some of the common traits you see in the people that come to your workshop? Do you, have you noticed any patterns? Aside from the fact that they're also looking for meaning. I mean, um, definitely. One of the things that I noticed was uh, people have a different level of realization after leaving the workshop. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, something important for me. I define the success of a workshop is basically by uh, how big and how frequent did you have aha moments. Mm. Yeah, that's that's something I, I really uh, focus on. Do they say on. it audibly like, ah? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you can see it in their faces, basically. <laughs> When their eyes light up. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, so what are some of the concepts that you, you've shared that you feel ha- has lit up uh, a lot of people's eyes? 
Um, one of the things that I share in the workshop is that uh, there's different types of values in life. Hmm. Um, there's moral values, uh, for example, honesty, uh, courage, uh, justice, compassion, all of those are moral values. And there is um, aesthetic values. So basically, uh, see, uh, judging whether a house is beautiful or not, hmm. it all goes back to uh, the taste of the person. Um, same thing goes with, uh, with cars and different objects. And uh, the measure you use for aesthetics is how beautiful is this thing, according to you. Right. Uh, but when it comes to moral values is whether this is right or wrong. Yeah. So the measure of moral value is right or wrong. And there is a third value that's called uh, practical values. I learned this personally from uh, Dr. John DiMartini, which is an American, uh, he's a human behavior specialist, basically. He's been doing workshops for the past 30 or so years. And uh, that in particular, the practical values, is what's really valuable to you as a person. And that's the measure of this, basically. So, for example, I personally uh, value uh, learning and reading and teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, those are top there in my values. And um, maybe another person has a value on sports and physical, uh, um, you know, physical beauty and sports and so on. Mm -hmm. And that's really important to them. Now, the measure here is not right or wrong. The measure is here is how important it is. How important it is to who? To the person. To the person. To the person, yes. Okay. So... Um, that's that's one idea and understanding this gives you so much peace in dealing with people How because so? because almost almost all human conflicts uh, revolves around these three things three three different values moral values mm -hmm. so if I say for example uh, for example I say um, being compassionate mm -hmm. okay defining that by itself is an issue Because I might define it differently than you define it. Yeah. You know, for example, between a husband and wife in raising their, their children, mm -hmm. uh, the, the wife has a certain idea of compassion and the husband has a different idea of compassion. Right. Even though they're both, both compassionate, they both care about their kids. Mm -hmm. One of them is trying to raise the kid in a, in a manner that will make them confident and uh, dependent. And the other would like to protect their feelings and so on. And that difference in, uh, in defining those moral values creates conflicts. Right. Yeah, uh, when it comes to aesthetics as well. When uh, it comes to what? To 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 the second value I mentioned, aesthetics. Aesthetics. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So basically, uh, um, whether the color of the house should be white or brown or gray and so on. I imagine uh, there'd be some conflict there. Exactly, building a house together with a, with yeah. a spouse and so on. Lots of conflict takes place because both of them are right in their own right. You know. Yeah, and that's how they view it basically and there's no right or wrong in this it's just uh, a matter of taste and when it comes to practical values it's similar there I mean uh, mm -hmm. a spouse could have a high value on uh, on let's say work money and social life and the other could have a high value on family um, uh, social life possibly on religion for yeah. example and uh, having these conflicting values is important to raise a wholesome family hmm. Because each one is contributing in their own way to the family. So, for example, if both parents have very high value at work or for work and money and social life, then there's no focus in raising the kids. Right. But having conflicting values is important 
you know, to have a wholesome family where someone is focused at work and someone is bringing money to the house, more money to the house, and uh, and the other is more focused on raising the kids in a certain way and their education and their uh, social life and so on. When when did you get married? How long ago? Um, well, eight years ago. Eight years yeah, ago. Yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you have kids, right? I, I do have two daughters, yeah. Mashallah. Yeah. Um, I notice a lot of the references that you use is in relation to um, uh, being in a marriage. Uh, what does family mean to you? Well, family is... My view of family is that in a certain way, it could bring the best and the worst in you. Mm-hmm. That's basically a family and having kids. You know, because have, as a parent, as a father or as a mother, mm-hmm. and uh, you sort of have absolute authority to your kids, especially in their younger years. Mm-hmm. And you decide what to do with that authority, whether to be the best person that you can, or they can bring the worst out of you. And learning that, learning that at an early stage is really important. And uh, for those who are married and ha- didn't have kids yet, To put that in mind is very important because uh, anything that you didn't learn throughout your life, mm-hmm. your kids will force you to learn it. Yeah. If yeah, exactly. If you're impatient, for example, <laughs> you'll learn to be patient. <laughs> I could easily see. Yeah, that would be a situation. I yeah. feel like most people would deal with that being patient, more patient after having kids. Yeah, more patient, more convincing, better negotiator. <laughs> But I imagine that would also be the case with living with another person uh, as in your spouse. Exactly. That's the first step. Yeah. I mean, with a spouse, that's a, that's the first. I would say that I would call that uh, kindergarten, basically, of life. You know, you realize things about yourself uh, with your spouse, and mm. you try to figure each other out, and uh, and uh, and basically be compatible with each other. Mm. And then, whatever you did not own or accept from your spouse, your kids would come and have those traits, and would force you to learn those traits and accept them. <laughs> Is it like a rule? It has to happen. <laughs> it kind of yes, kind of. I think, I think uh, the idea of unconditional love. Mm. Um, which is being shared quite uh, a lot nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it's a journey. It's never a destination. I mean, to be a person who's capable of unconditional love, it takes a lot of effort, man. A lot of effort and, and a high, high level of wisdom But, and acceptance. I, I, wanna, I want you, if you can, define what unconditional love means because I feel like different people will tell you different things. Yeah, uh, basically is to have love for other people regardless of how they are okay whether they are in your view whether they are uh, um, righteous or uh, wrong wrong Jewish or uh, whether they're wicked or they're good whatever it is and wh- whoever they are even if they are harming you mm. and to be capable to be to give that unconditional love I think uh, in the tradition of religion for example the prophets were up there mm. they have they had the the capacity to have unconditional love for people who even their enemies for example right. you can see that in the sayings of uh, Isa Jesus and you can see that in the uh, interactions of Muhammad وسلم, how he interacted with uh, with people who basically were trying to kill him hmm. how he interacted with them and that's a level of unconditional love because he wants good for them uh, regardless of what you do to me I don't care if you like me or dislike me but I want I want the good for you, basically. I can't even conceive of how 
people, at least in modern times, how do you even get there? Except if you're a monk in a mountain somewhere. Exactly. And being a monk in a mountain does not uh, help you to achieve that because you, you would have it in theory. But yeah. you'll only practice it when you engage with people. Well, oh, I forgot who said this, uh, that you can be a monk in the mountains, but it's not until you go back and visit your family. that <laughs> 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 I forgot who said that, that then you really find out that, oh, you're not there. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and to be honest, you, yeah. you, you might never be there. Yeah. But it's, it's just the journey of trying to reach there, you know? Right. It's like uh, that nirvana, that, uh, that absolute... Uh, you know, peaceful place that you try to arrive at and you would never arrive, but striving to get there will at least make you a better person. Yeah. And that's basically going back to marriage and having kids mm. is kind of that. It's, it's, uh, it's pushing you to become a better person. Do you believe in the idea of absolute or ultimate truth? Because you hear a lot of people say, this is my truth. That is your truth. We have different truths. Is there an absolute truth? that we should be striving for? Or are there uh, are truths subjective? I would say both. Hmm. When it comes to absolute truths, I mean, death is, is uh, definitely... It's true. It's true. <laughs> and no one can argue against that. Hmm. Um, believing in God, I mean, my, some people might disagree with this concept, but as a Muslim... Uh, believing God is is the fundamental truth, and and that should be the guidance for all our actions and behaviors. And believing in afterlife as well that there is mm. afterlife and there is judgment and there is, you know, uh, your actions. You you be accountable for your actions, and that gives you. And believing that truth specifically, um, it gives you peace that all the unjust that's happening in the world today would be brought to justice in the jail judgment. Now, I have, I've had the opportunity to speak to a, a people with many different ideologies, those who believe, those who don't, and those who believe in different ways than Muslims do. Um, I feel like that, that leap of faith, it's called a leap of faith because at some point it, you, you, you can't base it off of uh, evidence, right? Sure. The same way an atheist cannot say with certainty that there is no God. It's hard for a person who believes to convince anyone of the truth that there is. Um, it's, it's just something that you have to choose to do. Uh, and that is a choice that I could see in your writings that you, you strongly have made. Why is that important? And, and why, why is that important in, in, in this journey? Why can't someone live a life that's void of that and live a meaningful life? You see, as humans, I mean, we are the only creatures in this world where we question certain things that no other creature does. Mm -hmm. The meaning of life, who am I, where did I come from, where am I, go where am I going? Those three questions were, were asked by philosophers thousands of years ago. And no matter where you are, no matter what culture you come from or what religion you come from, in one way or another, you're always asking that question. You can see it in children sometimes. Definitely. Yeah. And, and one, one fundamental question is, where am I going to? That question of what's, what's happening after death. Hmm. And uh, whether is there a chance of me meeting my uh, loved ones or not? That's hmm. a very important question. I mean, and I mean, as 
as depressing as I might sound, mm. but realizing that either you or your loved ones, someone would depart from this world before. And uh, sometimes you could be the lucky one of living before everyone else, so you won't you won't go the through you won't go the, through the pain of of losing them. Mm. But uh, the other choice is the option is uh, you're living outliving basically your loved ones and uh, and experiencing the pain of them leaving. So the the peace uh, humans need is the hope to see them after this life, and that happens how. The only path is through through faith, through faith, through, through faith. Definitely, I mean, despite me, uh, I would I would I would say basically that logical thinking and uh, reason is important to me as a person, mm. but uh, the matters of faith are beyond logic and reason. I mean, the the logic of the logic of the human mind is limited by the rules of logic, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. there are things that are even human experiences that cannot be explained by logic. For example, mm-hmm. the concept of love or the experience of love. How can you explain that logically? It's, uh, it's very hard. Exactly. Yeah. The, the concept of sacrifice. Why do humans, some humans, mm. sacrifice so much for certain strangers. I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Che Guevara, for example. Mm-hmm. Che Guevara, he was a middle-class Argentinian from Argentina, and he graduated school uh, in medicine, and he had the opportunity of living a comfortable life in Argentina as a practicing uh, um, MD, medical practitioner. Um, but he decided to leave that comfort and join the revolution in Cuba, with mm-hmm. Fidel Castro and faced death so many times just to uh, promote his ideals of, uh, of socialism and uh, uh, equality in, in that society and to fight back on imperialism and capitalism. Why would he sacrifice uh, this much? And what, what makes it even more complicated is he himself was an atheist. He didn't, he didn't believe in, uh, in God and afterlife. Mm. So, but as a human being to do that, and not expecting any reward after this life is very strange to me. I mean, humans are very complicated beings, yeah? Mm. So, so, so what is it, do you think, that motivates, motivated him to do that, to sacrifice everything? If it's not the afterlife, then what? Because they are people who have achieved incredible things, who have done great things for society and the world... But they have they they lacked that 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 belief. So then, where do, where does the motivation come from? Well, um, I would make a claim here. I might be wrong in this claim, mm. but uh, I would say subconsciously, somewhere deep in their subconscious, there is that yearning for uh, making a positive impact in the world, and that yearning to make a positive impact in this world does not come from a void. I believe it comes from uh, the fact or the reality of being human. That part of being being a human being is to seek goodness in this world. Hmm. It's is there, whether you realize it, whether you're aware of it or not. It's somewhere there, and certain situations uh, activates that part of you, and you go out there try to to make a positive impact. 
uh, d- despite uh, despite him maybe not being aware of or not believing in afterlife or, or reward after that mm-hmm. but somewhere deep within him uh, he just yearned to to make a positive impact and okay maybe I'll be uh, I might be wrong in this but I see an overlap in those two ideas mm-hmm. in that Che Guevara who didn't believe in the afterlife but and those who do believe what they have in common is they believe in something that is larger than just themselves as individuals for sure maybe that's that's the thing something bigger something that's beyond it's outside of you sure I mean that's uh, that's a very good starting point to be honest hmm. that's a very good starting point to be honest and uh, by reading the biographies of people who changed the course of history mm-hmm. and watching uh, lots of documentaries on certain individuals um, I saw the pattern there that they all without exception mm-hmm. believed in something bigger than themselves and that belief uh, drove them to to do whatever they can and with whatever minimal resources they had to make uh, a positive change in the world. Now, it could be positive or negative, but to make some sort of change in the world. But they actually believed in something bigger than themselves. Whether be it it's uh, one of the, the their gods and their religions or humanity. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. For example, um, uh, Genghis Khan, mm-hmm. the, the, the founding father of the Mongolian Empire, who, who first, he was the first... Aren't we all related to him somehow? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, by, by the magnitude of the Mongolian Empire and uh, how, how many continents they that, invaded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Basically, the Mongolians uh, at his time mm. were uh, divided tribes. Mm. Divided tribes and they used to fight with each other and so on. Uh, and him as a, as a teenager, he was still young as a teenager, he had this vision, like uh, some sort of I would say, out-of-body experience. He was by himself in the desert, and uh, he heard a voice, like he imagined hearing a voice, mm-hmm. uh, telling him that his mission is to unite the Mongolian tribes under his leadership. And just because of that incident, that situation, he took it as a mission for his life. And he did just that. He, he, he united the, the Mongolian uh, tribes under his leadership, And uh, he was able to establish some sort of uh, um, rules to ensure that the tribes would actually work together and, and come under his leadership. And uh, the rest was history. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm going to ask you, Al-Akhar. Sure. <laughs> what's, what's the path to finding meaning in your life? I know it's, it's, it's just very... It's, it's no one answer, but like... Let's say I'm lost. And Alhamdulillah, I can say that I I do feel a sense of uh, purpose. I do feel like I'm in the right place right now. And maybe that will change in the future. Uh, But I do feel like I'm in a path, you know, and I'm lucky. I feel very, very, very grateful and lucky because I see so many people who probably seek even harder than I do and still don't have that. So for those who come to you in your workshop looking for that, How do you guide them? Well, there is three fundamental, um, I would say, illusions hmm. that people live by uh, regarding meaning and purpose in life. 
One of them is that uh, having one meaning is to have one big meaning in life and to live according to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that might not be right all the time. I mean, some people are lucky to have that. And uh, I wouldn't say lucky, but some people just have that. And that's their obsession, basically. And they live by that day in and day out. And people like, uh, for example, Steve Jobs. And uh, if, if, if someone read the biography, you could clearly see that he's obsessed by what he was doing to the point of working uh, 16, 18 hours a day. He's definitely a guy that uh, the ends justify the means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a level of, of, of obsession there, yeah, you know? Yeah, uh, But the majority of people, whether you believe you have meaning in life or not, if you wake up in the morning and you decide to leave your home, it means there's something that's driving you in this life. It's as simple as that. Paying rent, though. Paying rent, it's something... For example, for example, uh, maybe someone would say, oh, uh, I do have a bank loan. Yeah. I have to repay. Yeah. Coming to think about it, okay, wh- why do you have a bank loan? And uh, it goes back, I have a mortgage. I have a house I have to repay. Mm-hmm. Why do you have a house? Uh, I want to provide security for my family. Well, yeah. here you go. That's the meaning in your life at the moment. Mm. But you're not aware of it. The thing is, you have to make you have to bring it to your awareness by asking why by asking why and by appreciating the things that you do because if you if if you don't appreciate if you don't if you're not aware of it you cannot be appreciative towards it hmm. that's something really important so bringing these things these little different meanings in life into your awareness is crucial to realize that okay I actually have a meaning meaningful life at the moment I might be influenced by what I watch on YouTube and social media and those you know gurus out there saying you must have that big purpose in life and big meaning in life but it's not necessary you could have those small small things in your life that all but, but together gives you meaning exactly gives you meaning in life that's one thing mm-hmm. the second illusion people have is uh, meaning is fixed <laughs> Yeah. Uh, that's not, I mean, uh, when I was 25 years old, they yeah. thought, okay, you know what? Now I got my meaning in life. That's what it is. But after marriage, after having kids, you know, your meaning basically would change in life as you grow older, as uh, different responsibilities, you go out there and uh, and uh, adopt. Um, so meaning basically is not, is not uh, fixed. It's not something that you would have one day and stay with you for the rest of your life. Um, it could change according to your situation. Hmm. basically. That's the second illusion people have. Uh, the third illusion is, um, I can't recall it at the moment. It's okay. When yeah. it comes, uh, yeah. we'll talk about it. Yes, I definitely agree that meaning is not fixed from my own personal experience. Um, but what I do find to be a constant for me, at least, is wanting to have some form of a positive impact in in other people's lives it seems for me at least that if what i do does not affect another human being then there is no meaning so i guess my question to you is part of finding meaning um connected with other human beings or can finding meaning just be within you and yourself well that's a very difficult question to answer to be honest i mean um it could it could be both I mean, just just start, uh, I'm trying to be as inclusive as possible. Mm. Uh, thinking of, uh, for example, people who are artists, mm-hmm. you know, you have some artists who are trying to 
impact the world by their art. Right. And uh, there, are, there are those who just create art just being in the moment without having any thought of, uh, you of know, the outcome. Of, of the outcome. The process and, is the outcome. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You said it just right. Hmm. I mean, uh, that's why I said it's a very, very difficult question to answer because. As I mentioned, I mean, some people just do it for the sake of doing it. They love doing it. And they might find uh, the value of the outcome afterwards. Right. You know? Uh, for example, personally, uh, reading and learning is has been a passion for me since I was a kid. And uh, I didn't realize that uh, I can impact people's lives with my knowledge and, and what I read hmm. until uh, until I grew older, basically. Yeah. Until people actually told me, uh, my close friends used to tell me that uh, you're quite influential with your ideas and I love the way you think and you share these ideas and so on. So some, some outside uh, um, opinions actually uh, gave me the push to, you know what, let, let me, let me uh, extend my reach out there and try to influence people positively. Do you ever worry that the ideas that you share might uh, cause an inverse effect, a negative effect when... It, instead of positive does that is that something that you consider when sharing i mean sure definitely that's something that is always worrying when it comes to communication for two reasons i mean for uh, the risk of being misunderstood mm-hmm. that's one um, especially on social media platform because you know you, you cannot share as much and be ela- as 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 uh as elaborative in, in sharing your ideas, you know, you can, you can elaborate as much. I mean, you have certain limited number of uh, minutes that you have mm-hmm. to share your ideas on and some ideas require more time. That's why I'm quite reluctant to share some ideas in my social media posts. Mm. Uh, so the risk of being, being misunderstood is always there. Uh, the second thing is um, whether I have the capacity and the vocabulary and the style to share the ideas as I really think of them. Hmm. And that's really concerning for me because, uh, you know, sometimes the the listener, uh, definitely, almost all the time, not sometimes, almost all the time, the listener understands things according to their perception. Right. And their vocabulary, you know. So uh, trying to be as clear as possible when speaking is a skill that, has been always for me quite challenging to be honest hmm. and uh, to the point that uh, for example I'm sharing a secret here but uh, the workshop that I delivered it's a four hours workshop mm-hmm. but I actually sat down uh, in planning for the workshop and I wrote down the ideas that I would like to share in the workshop as if I'm talking Okay. So imagine four hours of worth of talking in writing. Yeah. So that's the amount of effort it took me. I think I think just counting the hours possibly took me anything between eight eight to ten hours. Hmm. Uh, definitely, it was spread out through the different days. But I went through the content that I had, and okay, this is this idea I would like to share. This uh, and this topic, I would like to share these ideas. So I sat down and actually pen and paper and wrote wrote down those ideas. Wow. And uh, and being face to face with your ideas and seeing them uh, gives you the the ability to criticize them and improve on them as well. Hmm. And just to make sure that you are. Uh, 
as concise and as clear as possible. Can I just say, like, to this point, everyone, everyone, I believe, should learn how to write. Because you think you know how to think until you start writing. Absolutely. And then you realize, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it sharpens your thinking skills. To me, writing is not the, the, the act of, you know, just putting words on paper. But how do you format a thought? How do you analyze a thought? And then how do you lay it down in a way that's comprehensible? It's, it's a very critical thing that I feel like I wasn't taught at school. I had to learn that. And I honestly don't feel like I've completely i wish i was that was uh, given to me more as a kid you know yeah sure. Learn, not learning how to write just like uh, copy the text from above but learning how to think on paper right or re- getting a voice recorder and recording which, yeah uh, I, i just wanted to pause there and say like that's i feel like that unpacks a little bit about how you go about your thinking and your process. You write. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I do write. I mean, uh, and I realized the importance of of, uh, of reading and writing as well when I was in college. Mm. And uh, one one of the units I took back in college was uh, in economics. Mm. Um, and one of the assignments was to to assess a certain company and, uh, and write an assignment of, I think, 3,000 words or so. Mm-hmm. which is quite a lot for for university students, especially yeah. in year one. I think it was in year one. <laughs> yeah, I remember. But uh, um, luckily, at that time, in my leisure time, I was reading a book on philosophy mm. called On Equilibrium. Uh, it's a very powerful book, and uh, it's one of the books that uh, made an impact on me, at least in terms of uh, thinking and how to think logically, how to present your ideas. Mm. And uh, reading that book assisted me in writing an assignment uh, in a very concise manner and to build the arguments in the assignment in a, in a, in a strong way, basically. And uh, even though it was the biggest assignment back then I've ever done, uh, the results I got was really satisfying, um, even, though, even though I wouldn't say I had depth in the research but the style of writing the arguments really assisted in you know uh give, making good impression on the uh, tutor basically yeah yeah i, I want to ask you for a genuine advice here because i struggle with this a little bit i struggle with certainty about a lot of things you know because life has burnt me over and over again when i thought i understood something and i thought i was actually helping another human being by giving them advice that I was certain about. Mm -hmm. And then later on, I learned that I was wrong Mm -hmm. and I may have harmed this person rather than did them good. And I, you know, it's, I have, I did a podcast, uh, I do this radio show, but you, people think that means I speak a lot. I don't, I actually just ask a lot of questions. I I hesitate to, to say things with certainty because life has burnt me over and over again. How do you go about that? Because some of the things you say, you say it with so much certainty. Mm-hmm. And if anything, because of my past life experience, I become a bit wary when I hear someone tells me something with so much certainty, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So how do you come to grips with that? How do, how, how do you feel safe that what your words are not harming another human being? Well, um, again, that's a very good question, Abdullah. <laughs> Personally, uh, trying to protect others is a huge burden 
to have on yourself. I mean, even when it comes to raising kids, protecting them in a certain way, uh, shielding them from certain ideas or certain experiences uh, might do them more harm than good in the long run. So um, taking that burden away helps in terms of uh, in terms of uh, sharing your ideas with certainty. Even though you might come across a different idea at some point of time in the future, and which would force you to change your stance on certain things, yeah. your views on certain things. And uh, the thing I share, maybe not in my social media platforms, but uh, in my workshops specifically, mm-hmm. I always start with the idea that I'm not an expert. So whatever I'm sharing is uh, could be right, could be wrong. Um, so my advice to you is to take what's useful for you in this workshop and leave away what's not useful. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is, please use your logic and your critical thinking to uh, criticize what I say. Don't take everything that I say for granted. That's something I really make sure I mention in every workshop that I deliver, because uh, because again I I don't want to have the burden of you know someone taking certain idea and said oh Matasam said that and uh, you know and going mm-hmm. out there you know that's the thing I mean for one one very good example is uh, the motivational videos that are very common nowadays mm-hmm. on social media platforms and on on YouTube I mean. Um, I could go out there and motivate people to be independent and become entrepreneurs and, you know, you have to be financially free and this, that. Um, but the reality of the matter is possibly I'm coming from a wealthy family. Right. And I have my life secured. I have my my own house that's paid for already. And, uh, you know, I have certain level of income that's coming to me without doing much. And me going out there and motivating people to be independent and be entrepreneurial and leave their jobs and focus on their business could unfortunately lead to some people going to jail if they take a loan and mm. you know they 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 fail in their business so that sort of ideas i really object and and i don't like because uh um just to answer a question like in a nutshell uh understanding the situation of people is important to give the proper advice Hmm. And and sometimes you might not give any advice and just um, give advice through questioning. I find myself doing that often. That's that's much much better, and that's basically the concept of coaching. You know, the professional coaching you hear nowadays, life coach, and so on. Uh, almost all they do is they ask questions and uh, and give the responsibility to the person seeking advice to find their own answers. But it's also very frustrating for both the receiver and the, the the person give or not giving the advice. You know, it's sometimes I wish I do have more certainty about things. Mm. It seems peaceful. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. There is there is a sense of peacefulness in having certainty in, in ideas, certain ideas, because halas, you stop questioning them. Mm-hmm. You can rest. You know it. Yeah. But when you don't, it, it does not feel like it's a recipe to happiness or peace of mind. Happiness is a whole different topic, but yeah. to peace, I would say. I mean, la, la, one of the big illusions we have as humans is, uh, I mean, again, as depressing as this might sound, mm. uh, that life is peaceful. You know, that peace, peace in life is uh, something that could be achieved. 
And unfortunately, that's not the case, hmm. whether at a personal level or uh, in a family or in a society or between countries. Then what is it? I mean, um, there's always conflict out there. And there's always conflict within yourself as a human being. Hmm. That's something that's unavoidable. And that's the complexity of life, basically. The idea is how to cope and how to live with that conflict and how to act uh, with virtue in, in the face of these conflicts. So would you say, would this be a, a far reach to say that life is pain and it is on us to choose what kind of pain we want to experience? In a certain extent, yes. I wouldn't say pain, I would say struggle. Struggle or yes. suffering is too strong of a word? Suffering was, yeah, was it's too strong for a word. Uh, struggle. St- I would say struggle. I mean, yeah. and quite interestingly, um, you see the word struggle hmm. in this uh, form, the word struggle specifically. You see it repeated in different cultures, different religions, mm-hmm. and different uh, spiritual or social leaders. It was mentioned by Nelson Mandela. He called uh, the movement in South Africa a struggle. It was mentioned by Gandhi. It was mentioned by Che Guevara. And again, I mean, this is fundamental for us as Muslims. It was mentioned by Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. I mean, the word jihad in, in, in Arabic, the actual meaning of jihad is struggle. Hmm. It's not uh, the holy war as it is being uh, portrayed now. Exactly, yeah. Hmm. So the actual meaning of it is is struggle, and uh, even there is there is a hadith where where he says um, the meaning. Let me paraphrase what's said in the hadith. But basically, uh, after coming back from a war, he told his companions, "Now we're going back to the biggest struggle." And one of them asked, "What is the biggest struggle, O Prophet?" And he said, "The the struggle against the self." Hmm. So taming the self is a bigger struggle than actually going out there. And it's the big jihad. It's the big jihad, yeah. So the word struggle is, uh, I saw that being repeated in different religions, different cultures. So possibly that's one of the higher wisdoms of life is to realize that life is struggle. I've 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 always internalized that though, and, and it's it seems I often uh, it seems very pessimistic. But it also feels very true. It's everything. Uh, even when you do get, say, your dream job, you get your dream spouse, you get all the money in the world, right? There will always be struggle associated with it in one way or another. And our culture's obsession with happiness, I don't know if I think that is the path. Because... Who lives happy every all the time? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's unrealistic. It's unrealistic. Like you're 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 seeking something that doesn't exist. At least the way I see it. Yeah. So then, what do we strive for if it's not happiness? Gratitude. Gratitude. Yeah, that's attainable, man. Yeah, that's attainable. That's a choice. It's a choice. It's attainable and could be done uh, any time of the day, every day. What about gratitude? You could be always grateful for something in your life. Always. Let me share a personal experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, this happened a while back. I was 20 years old and I attended a workshop. It was called, um, it was called, uh, I can't remember, uh, it was The Secrets to Financial Wealth. Mm-hmm. That's the name of the workshop. 
And the trainer was an American called Dr. John Martini. And uh, throughout the day from 9 a.m. until 6 p.m., he was sharing different philosophies on building wealth and uh, making money and investing and so on. By the end of the workshop, I went to him and I told him, uh, what advice would you give to a 20-year-old uh, university student who is ambitious to reach very far in life? Mm-hmm. I remember this question because I wrote it down. And uh, he told me, when you go back home, before you sleep, take a piece of paper and count your blessings. And um, at that moment, I was upset. I thought... You got he, cheated. Yeah, so I, exactly. I got cheated. Now, here's a guy who has been telling us for the whole, the whole day, nine hours. You're and, telling me it's not Bitcoin? It's, uh, it's writing my gratitude? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I was upset with his answer. And I went back home and uh, I got a piece of paper. Mm. But uh, after looking at it, I said, you know what, this is uh, crap and uh, I'm not going to follow his advice. Mm. I wasted my time today, basically. Um, and three years later, around three years later, yeah, I was back in Oman back then. I was running through a very difficult time personally. I was not satisfied with my job. I was not satisfied with uh, how things are being uh, run in my life and so on. And... Um, I came across uh, a video on YouTube and the speaker was talking about uh, a company called, I'm not sure it's a company, it's Hans Saley, Hans Saley uh, Stress Management. Basically, they're an institute in Canada that specializes in stress management. And after doing a survey of thousands of people, they, re- they came to the conclusion that the best trait to have as humans to combat stress is gratitude. Not happiness, not love, not other positive traits, but it was gratitude. Well, happiness and love, I feel like you have very little control over. Kind of, yeah. Kind of. Yes. But gratitude, it seems you can get control over that pretty straight up. Exactly. So what happened when I heard that, I was like, uh, okay, that's a sign. And uh, maybe what Dr. John has shared with me Mm. three years ago uh, made sense, but I was not, uh, I would say aware enough to realize it back then. So I decided that night to sit down and write my blessings. And I write about, I think I wrote about something about 10 to 15 blessings. I was grateful for in my life at that moment. And uh, I felt that sense of gratitude and I slept, slept quite peacefully at that night. Mm. And uh, after that became a habit. And a few years later, um, I would say I have more than 2,000 different blessings written on my Oh, you write iPad. them down. Yes, I do write them down. At least three blessings every day. Wow. Whether I start the day with them or end the day with them, it uh, doesn't matter. But basically, you see that definitely you realize and you're aware of uh, the verse that says, mm. if, you try to, if you try to count the blessings of Allah, you would never able to enumerate them, basically. It's infinity. It's infinity. It's infinite. And well, you know what's interesting? The word... Uh, used in this ayah, ni'mah, it refers to one single blessing. It's not ni'am. Ni'am in Arabic means blessings. Mm-hmm. Ni'mah is only one blessing. Mm-hmm. As if one blessing leads to infinite number of blessings. So if, if, I'm, if I'm grateful for the, the blessing of sight, this blessing of sight leads to infinite number of blessings I can see things I can see people I can read things I can you know and it goes on and on I there was a period of time where I practiced this on a regular basis along with um, 
um, being generally present and not just thinking so much about the future and the past, those two combined together have been extremely helpful in times when I need it. Um, but it is a habit. You, you do forget. It's so easy, to, at least for me, it's so easy to forget to be grateful. Yeah. Like it's, it's, you need to, I need to actively either be reminded or remind myself and you know, count your blessings. Uh, and it's amazing how no matter how miserable you are at the time that once you start counting those blessings and actively not just like throwing them يعني, you say the blessing you pause you say alhamdulillah yeah. and it it really does shift your perspective in that moment absolutely yeah and uh, and going back to our daily prayers as as, as muslim one of the things that we mentioned in every single rak'ah when we pray is alhamdulillah rabbil alamin mm. you know the, that that is yeah it's true so mm. so if you're so as if as if huh? mm. if you're not aware of your blessings and you pray and you say alhamdulillah rabbil alamin but you're not actually grateful as if you're being hypocritical by your prayers yeah and that's that's the gym that's the spiritual gym we have every single day yeah. is to be grateful and to pause and to realize your blessings and just say alhamdulillah to be conscious really exactly yeah. you see a lot of people who mashallah every prayer they're in the mosque but are they conscious that's that's a re- that's a real challenge to be honest yeah and and it really shifts you as a person it really makes you uh, more patient because gratitude is linked with patience if you are if you are impatient any moment a human is impatient hmm. What it means fundamentally is you're not grateful for the blessings you have at that moment. Hmm. If you're impatient in traffic, for example, which I sometimes struggle with, hmm. it means at that moment I'm not grateful of having a car that's air-conditioned in Oman. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah? Yeah. Because that could be the thing that you're, gr- you're grateful for. You're there, you're frustrated, it's hot and people are honking and zahma. Yeah. But like now imagine your AC is not working. Exactly. Why not be grateful that your air conditioning works? Exactly. Imagine not, not, not having a car that you need to walk or uh, you see the yeah. sometimes the laborers working under the sun yeah. in the middle of the heat and you know. So so basically impatience means uh, it could be rooted on being in, in grateful as well, ungrateful as well. Yeah, if you would allow me, Ma'atasim, after we go on a quick break, I would love to ask you questions about you, your past, your life, um, as a child growing up to where you are today. Is that okay with you? Yeah, sure, fine. I'm fine with that. This is Oman FM. And we're back to Ain't Nobody Listening on Oman FM. And with me in the studio is Ma'atasam Al-Sharji. Ma'atasam, what a conversation we've been having. Yeah, time flew, man. It's been <laughs> an hour and a half. and uh... um, Yeah, I, I don't believe it. And it, it feels like, actually, with topics like these, they can go on forever. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then also with topic like these, I feel like... I don't know about you, but is there such a thing, uh, such a thing as overthinking? You know, because at what point asking questions is just causing more pain than good? When there is no clarity of the intention of asking questions, mm. that's something that uh, that could do more harm than good, basically. 
So when there is no intention. Well, there's no clear intention. Why are you asking these questions? Okay. Uh, I mean, you could be, you could question your whole life, but if there's no clarity in terms of what you're trying to reach at, then um, you might not reach it. You might reach uh, at the dead end, basically. Yeah. And it will make you uh, stop believing everything. And as a human, we can't live a life without any sort of belief. Yeah. Then you will be unable to function. Exactly. Even believing that um, when you hit the brakes in your car, the brakes, are, your car's going to stop, right? Yeah. Uh, to, yeah, yeah. To that micro level. Were you a happy kid growing up? I would say somewhat, yeah, yeah. I would say a normal kid back in the days, back in the early 90s. That's my generation, basically, yes, growing up. Same uh, generation. Late 80s, early 90s. Mm. And uh, back then, you know, the influence you have was your parents, your neighbors, your school. And that's about it. I mean, uh, that's all influence you have. And TV as well, but TV was limited. Hmm. You know, certain cartoon shows and that's it. That's about it. We don't have much. When you look, when you think back to your childhood, is it mostly fond memories or um, is there pain? Um, f- I, would, I would say both. I would say both, but more fond memories and more uh, adventures as a kid. Adventures? Adventures, definitely, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I come from Al-Hail Shmaliya. Hey! Yes, and, okay. uh, and uh, our neighborhood was co- quite uh, vibrant. And uh, Which part of Al-Hail Shmaliya? Uh, Sabko, to be specific. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and right. yeah, from your life, you know that yeah. neighborhood. <laughs> That's where I came from. And yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it was quite vibrant and uh, lots were, was happening and uh, lots of kids in the neighborhood playing football every day. And uh, in the summer, we go to the beach because it's just next to the beach. And, uh, you know, it was, it was adventurous, I would say. Have you always been this curious, uh, even as a kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I is was. it something that you developed with time? Uh, I, was, I was curious as a kid and I was a rebel as well as a kid. I was, a, I was a huge rebel. I mean, uh, I, uh, I always questioned uh, the rules. Hmm. As as young as I remember, as I mean, as young as grade one in school, I used to question the rules of the school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and how uh, did that go? <laughs> uh, it didn't go very well, definitely. But uh, but Alhamdulillah, I I I was able to continue with my uh, with my trait of being a rebel. Uh, despite the the trouble it got me into, mm. and um, I maintain my stance if uh, if no clear justified reason was given to me for a certain rule. Mm. For example, in school, uh, I think when I was grade I think grade five mm. or grade four, uh, when we started memorizing the uh, multiplication table, mm. um, I saw my older brother using a calculator, and I asked him, "What is this?" And he told me, "It's a calculator." You can uh, you can know the result of the multiplication uh, of numbers, you know. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. So you're allowed to use it in class. He's like, yeah, in exam. He's like, yeah, you can use it in exam. I was like, okay, why are we memorizing this right now? <laughs> <laughs> and the next day I was in school and the teacher was uh, asking the students the answer of questions. I'm like, yeah. I don't know the answer to this question. And uh, and he started showering me. He's like, why should I memorize this if in three years' time I'll be using calculator in school? Yeah. And uh, of course that question... Uh, 
uh, caused an aha moment for everyone in the class and uh, <laughs> leading a rebellion. <laughs> a rebellion happened in the whole class. Kind of, yeah. The whole class like, yeah, that's true. Why are we, why are we memorizing this? And uh, a guy in the back is like, yeah, why <laughs> Yeah, so that's only one incident uh, among many incidents of being a rebel. Give me another example. Um, uh, for example, wearing, um, wearing shoes. Hmm. Like uh, full on, uh, full on trainers. You know, in Oman, we, we were sandal with the jdasha. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in school we were forced to wear shoes, especially at a younger age, from grade one to grade three, I think. And I was against that. I was like, you know, I see my father wearing a sandal with the jdasha. My older brother wearing wearing sandal with the jdasha. Why should I wear shoes with this? It doesn't doesn't look good. Doesn't doesn't uh, you know? Doesn't fit. Hmm. And uh, and the reason I was given was. Uh, for your own safety and so you don't hurt yourself. I'm like, uh, okay, I'll be responsible enough not to hurt myself, mm. but I'll be wearing a sandal. And I was the only one in class. It was me and this other student who rebelled against this. And we were only and it worked? Two. It worked, yeah. We continued. <laughs> we continued wearing a sandal in, in class. Like, what do we tell him? Yeah, he has a point. <laughs> well, at least uh, they, you got... You got your way. Exactly. I mean, sometimes I didn't get, I didn't get, uh, I didn't get my way. But uh, it was always, it, it was always good to test the limits. For example, even the school allowance. Hmm. When I was given the school allowance first time by my father, I asked why this much, why not more. <laughs> who, who, who made the rule that the school allowance is this much? Why not less is what I would say back to you. <laughs> but yeah, but uh, for me, it's, testing the limits was always uh, uh, something innate in me, basically. Testing the limits. Uh, does that does that mean questioning? Definitely, yeah. It comes from questioning. Why? Uh, the question is why. The question is why. Yeah. Why should I wear shoes? Why should I memorize the multiplication table? Why should I get only this allowance? Why not more? You know, it's just questioning. And uh, if the person couldn't give me uh, a logical, uh, rational answer, then uh, I wouldn't follow. But then you get in trouble. Yeah, but I was okay with it. I was like, uh, I would go with the, with the trouble and uh, I would struggle with it. There is something that is in my mind right now that I am holding myself to not say because I know I might get in trouble for saying it. But it definitely does have to do with um, getting to wear what you want to wear. So I'm just going to keep it there. If you're listening to Lal, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, sometimes you got away. Um, whether if you rebel against something, is it causing more good to your cause, to your goals, to your mission, to your purpose, or is it causing more harm? And then sometimes you just have to stand down and be like, you know what, I'll lose this one, but it's for a reason. I know this went beyond the scope of your story here, but I, 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 my message is directed towards someone specific. <laughs> shout out, shout out, shout out. And then as a teenager, how was that like for you? As a teenager, I would say one of the things that um, I'm grateful, I'm really grateful for as a teenager is I started practicing karate. Okay. And that gave me so much discipline that uh, I wouldn't have had if if I didn't practice karate. I think um, the only time that, one of the very few times that I accepted authority Hmm was from my karate coach. Why is that? 
Um, Cause he could beat you. Yeah, <laughs> I think, I think, I think that's one reason. Yeah, I was like, okay, this, this, uh, this man is legit and uh, he's strong, he's powerful. I can see his skill level. I'm like, you know what? I have to listen to this guy and I have to follow through basically. Um, but when it comes to other areas of life, for example, in school, mm-hmm. uh, you can always ask questions that the teacher couldn't answer. I mean, that's, uh, that's something, that's a skill I used to have since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but in karate, I was like, okay, uh, the, the measurement here for success is Obedience. How, how, sk- how skillful you are in your techniques. Mm-hmm. And that's, I saw that my coach was way beyond myself as a kid. Yeah. And uh, I started practicing when I was 13 years old. And it was a whole neighborhood starting uh, karate together. Like they brought a whole bus and They wow. took us together to, uh, from Al Hair all the way to PDO. And from around uh, 50 kids who started in that summer, only five continued to black belt. Hmm. And I was one of them. Nice. So you're a black belt in karate. Yeah, yeah, man. What's Since, done? Uh, um, done one was, I got done one in, back in 2003. Wow. Yeah, and uh, I got my fourth done, done four. Hmm. In 2011, I think. Okay, so uh, are you practicing now? So. Right now, for the past couple of years, I got a bit lazy because we do have a club at the moment, uh, Laptal, Academy of Laptal, Karate Champions Club, mm. uh, based in Ramalah, Ramalah, Jnubiya. And uh, I got a bit lazy because uh, my colleagues are coaching at the moment and mm-hmm. they're more focused than I am. And I got busy with other things in life. Busy uh, reading books. <laughs> kind of, yeah. I mean, that and work and family and lots of the different things happening at the moment. So uh, I became, I would say, less committed in uh, coaching karate. But I was coaching for quite some time, back from 2010 until around 2016, 17. I was coaching almost two or three times a week. Just the other day, I had uh, a master taekwondo. Uh, he's a, he's a, my brother-in-law. Um, and one thing that was very apparent and clear to me is how much value martial arts can bring to a kid's life in terms of um, discipline particularly. For which sure. Is, which is something we all need, a little bit more self-discipline. Sure. But self-discipline has to be taught, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, and... Honestly, karate helped me because before that I was um, being a rebellious kid and uh, being hot-tempered as well as a kid. I used to get in, I used to get into fights uh, quite easily and quite often in school. Me too. Yeah, man. in school. Exactly. And, uh, but uh, but with karate, I think uh, it instilled in me that self-discipline and self-control. Um, that basically uh, my hot temper just went away. And uh, I used to react to situations much more uh, composed than before. So, yeah, karate definitely gave me that. Yeah. Do you remember why you would get into a lot of fights? Um, Because I'll tell you, for me, I feel like I was a very angry kid growing up. Just angry in general. Mm-hmm. Angry about where I was, which school I was going, who I was. Um, just angry at my existence in general, if you will. And so I would take it out on anyone. I remember I must have been the worst kid to try to be friends with because I couldn't take a joke. 
Mm-hmm. You, okay. you joke, you make a joke towards me, even though it's like, you know, guys, they make f- jokes, they tease. Yeah. Oh, malik, malik, you take off the dishdasha. And like, it was, I wouldn't want to be friends with me at that time. But it was, I was, and and I have a, an idea of where a lot of that anger comes. And I definitely don't want to do this on air. It's a part of my therapy. It's something yeah. that I talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was that anger. I was a very angry kid, uh, just generally. And it would come out in the form of fights. Where did yours come from? Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. I'm not sure. But I think uh, possibly one of the things that I took, um, I didn't take lightly, was uh, was curse words. Hmm. Because at home, my parents, and specifically my father, was very strict when it comes to cursing at home and so on. So if someone cursed at me, even if it's a simple curse as a kid, I never used to accept it. I used to fight back physically because maybe I was not trained to to curse back mm. verbally. So the solution was to take it physically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would, uh, I'm guessing that's a very surface reason. That's a, definitely that's surface reason. I mean, yeah. uh, I didn't give it much thought to be honest of mm. why. Possibly the power dynamics at home, having all the siblings. Um, How many siblings do you have? Uh, we're a total of seven. So six, six siblings, yeah. How two, is that two, like? Two older than me and uh, four younger than me. You're number three. Yes. يعني ما عبروك. يعني exactly. The middle child, you know, the middle child syndrome. But, <laughs> but it's, it's like all good. A... It's all good. I mean, uh, I think whatever, wherever you are and whatever you go through in life, especially as a child, uh, you can use that either uh, to chain you or to fuel you up. To what or to what? To chain you. Chain you? Yeah. Uh-huh. So you chained with your childhood experiences uh, yeah. and, and perceive them as negative and that's why I'm a failure in life and that's why I can't go much far in life. Mm. Or you can perceive them as a fuel for you to move further. For example, I'll give you an example when it comes to, to uh, knowledge that's quite important to me. Um, just quick one, personal story. Uh, growing up as a child, I used to struggle with uh, stuttering. Hmm. I used to stutter as a child. And um, maybe one of the reasons of my stuttering, of course, there's lots of reasons. Uh, genetic is one of them. But uh, maybe one of the reasons was uh, growing up as a child who was very talkative and uh, used to be silenced a lot in different settings, whether it's a school or at home or at whatever it is. Um, but with my logical mind of a six, seven years old kid, I noticed that uh, my father, uh, despite him uh, um, being young and not that old back then, he was in his early 40s at that time, but he used to lead prayers in uh, the mosque, Filhara. And he used to uh, even give uh, sermons and khutab, uh, you know, and so on. Yeah. So I'm like, uh, okay. So if I want to speak, not if I want to speak without being silenced, I have to have knowledge. Uh. Uh, for me, that was kind of an inspiration, and I'm like, uh, you know what? If you want to speak and uh, people listen to you speaking, you must have knowledge to back up your talk. You must reference. Uh, yes, you know, you must have knowledge. Knowledge, yes. but how do you demonstrate that you have knowledge? You demonstrate it by referencing, no? Possibly, Re- yes. Referencing a refer- book, referencing a quote, referencing a person. Possibly, yes, yeah. You do that until today. Yes, I do that until today, yeah. But, uh, but the idea was, uh, for me, uh, growing up, that was quite important and quite uh, 
fundamental for the person that I am today. That this realization at a young age, even though it was it was unconscious to be honest for yeah. a long time, it was unconscious, and I became aware of it uh, at an at an at a late much later stage when I was much older. I was like going back to my life and my experiences as a child, and I realized that uh, this was one of the um, biggest motivations for me in life is to seek knowledge and then share knowledge based on that knowledge that you sought. Wow, if I was your therapist right now, I'd be connect, connecting this directly to your dad. <laughs> Possibly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean that uh, that sense of wanting approval, no? Uh, um, possibly, but uh, not. But, I, but I'm not a therapist. Yeah, so. <laughs> I wouldn't say so. No, I wouldn't say so. Uh, I would say seeing inspiration in that, like seeing that my father, despite him being young and. Uh, He's still able to lead uh, in social settings and in the mosque, in the neighborhood. Uh, and the reason why he's allowed to lead is because he had knowledge. And uh, the other good example I had was he had a library at home with, uh, I would say, not less than 300 books back then. And growing up in a house with full of books, so that mm. was for me, it was a good, uh, I think it was a good foundation. That's why it's, it's really good to share this story by the end of the session today mm. because... I wouldn't. I wouldn't attribute the person I am today to me only. Hmm. Definitely, my upbringing played a huge role in shaping the person that I am. It's crazy to me that we only have nine minutes left. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because Just, my, my next follow-up is okay. Young adult, Matasam, you go to college, past late teens, early twenties. What were the biggest themes that you were dealing with at the time? Wow, for me that was. Um, Another life-changing experience, going to Australia for college and um, a kid living, a kid coming out of Al Hel, Shamalia, Harat Sabko to be specific, <laughs> and uh, traveling for the first time on my own and uh, going to a foreign country and not knowing much about it. And uh, back then, definitely, I mean, uh, there's no mobile phones. There's, you know, there's mobile phones, but there's no uh, smartphones. Mm. So you're not as connected as before. So even calling family back then was uh, using a phone box and uh, right. coins. And you're minuted by basically by number of minutes you can talk to your family. Or the money that you have. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, for me, that was a life changing experience, especially that uh, that working part time was uh was mandatory to sustain uh, living in Australia as a student. So working part-time while studying okay. and being exposed to different cultures, different religions, different backgrounds. For me, that was quite fascinating because I, I always had this curiosity growing up. But uh, back then with the lack, I wouldn't say lack of internet, but internet back then was still in its early stage. And uh, I wasn't spending much time on the internet anyway because as a teenager in Oman, you know, spend most of the time either in school or with your Playing fr- friends, there yeah, or something, friends yeah. in the neighborhood and so on. So uh, interacting with people who are really different than you are uh, changed the way I think and changed the way I view the world. And uh, it fueled my curiosity, to, my curiosity to, to go and read and explore more basically. Do you remember a specific theme that you try to grapple with uh, during your early 20s? Uh, to me, the early 20s and late teens is such a formative time. 
of anyone's life. A lot of things, at least in my life, I could attribute to what I learned during that period. I would say religion. Hmm. That's a big thing. I mean, we wouldn't have uh, enough time to discuss that. Yeah. But uh, um, religion was something that's quite major in that period of my life. And uh, I had to go through my own journey to re-explore my religion as a Muslim. And Alhamdulillah, I think uh, one of the things that that helped me in that journey was uh, the clarity of intention. Yeah. So despite being brought up in a household that's religious mm-hmm. and uh, and all, but uh, to have that spiritual experience and to have that uh, faith is is your own homework. Mm-hmm. No one can teach you to be faithful. That's something that's your own homework. You have to do it. You have to do the work. You have to read. You have to research. You have to explore. You have to um, um, contemplate on ideas to reach to a certain uh, faith or uh, belief system. And uh, for me, being away from family and being away from society gave me that, I would say, freedom hmm. to to explore and... Uh, to find your own path. Exactly, my own path. And, uh, and, and again, what helped me much in that journey was the clarity of intention. I clarified the intention myself that, Matasam, um, your intention in this exploration and this journey is to arrive, um, I, w- I wouldn't call it truth, but what's, c- c- to come closer to truth, basically. Because uh, re- arriving at uh, a truth as as, uh, as a word is such a big thing and such a big stretch, but uh, trying to, or striving to arrive at truth. As close as possible to exactly. the truth exactly. as possible. Exactly. <laughs> so right now, you're doing this incredible work of sharing the things that you learn and through books and articles and all on your Instagram page. And you're relatively active. There were periods where you are more active than others. Yeah. Um, how do you see that transforming in the next five years? Well, oh, you also have workshops, which is kind of relatively new as well. Well, yeah. workshops have been doing that for some time, uh, yeah, to be and, honest. And, and the same um, topic, uh, meaning? Um, not same topic, no. But yeah. previously, I used to mostly focus on um, on corporates. Mm. So things to do with capacity building, uh, interpersonal skills, um, fundamentals of business, you know, sales, uh, strategy, and, th- and so on. Mm. Um, but this is quite personal to me. This workshop that I do, it's basically, it's, uh, it's designed for my own need, for my own, not need, for my own um, uh, purpose. And and uh, it's not to serve a certain... Which is? Which is meaning. Finding meaning in life and knowing oneself. So is... Because I personally went through the same experience and I had a long uh, journey of being lost as a person and not knowing what I want to do. And is that part of your meaning now? Is definitely. showing the path to meaning for others? Definitely, yes. I mean, for me, it was uh, uh, learning and teaching was those two themes that really stood out. And uh, I'm not saying this happened overnight. Hmm. It took me almost... Uh, to confirm that, it took me almost a period of... I would say 10 years. Wow. 10 years of actually experimenting and asking myself critical questions and uh, writing down my thoughts and ideas in, in uh, notebooks. Um, I finished maybe something around, maybe not less than five notebooks of 200 pages. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, th- That took me like um, a good three, four years of my life. Almost every weekend on Fridays, mm. 
I used to sit down and uh, for three hours, almost three hours, and reflect on ideas and write down and so on. And that gave me clarity. Well, we have arrived to the end of our time. Um, before we leave, how can people follow you? Mu'atasam um, Sultan. At Mu'atasam Sultan on Instagram. Exactly. Any other platforms you're on? Um, mostly Instagram. I, I I am in Facebook and Twitter, but I'm not very active there. Mostly on Instagram. Mu'atasam Sharji, this has genuinely been a pleasure. And uh, I can't wait for us to have more conversations like this. My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. Will, will you accept my invitation if I ask you in the end? <laughs> definitely. Definitely. I mean, I enjoyed this conversation and uh, you really ask very good questions, which helps the flow of the conversation. I'm glad. And you, you give great answers. <laughs> so there you go. We make a great team. <laughs> thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank man. you. Have a lovely evening. Man. You too. You too. I feel that. Nobody listening. Ain't nobody listening. Ain't nobody listening. Ain't nobody listening.